It's been a few weeks, but we are back talking about conflict with others. Conflict with others. I took James 4 and I broke it down into tiny little spots so that we could just slowly walk through it because it's very intentional about conflict. And think about the church, this community, this family. Think about your marriage. Think about your friendships. Think about someone talking to a person about uh, another person but never going to that person. Think about gossip, slander. Thinking about someone dismissing another person in the church because they don't meet their criteria or standard. Think about not speaking the truth in love because of fear of man. Or speaking the truth without love because there's no compassion. If you remember James 4.1, or I will remind you, he started off this section with what is the source of wars and fights among you? And some of us are like, them, right? Like, we got great answers. I hope this is rhetorical because I know the answer. Or could it be multiple choice? And A, B, C, and D is them. It's the other people or my circumstance, my situation. And James says, no, 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 no. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So talking back into conflict, look down from verse 1 down to verse 7. And I want you to see this for yourself. James 4, verse 7 through 10. Therefore, we'll hit that in a minute. But therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So as a reminder, if you haven't been with us, James has been making a case. And the case that he's made that's led to this point, that led to therefore, is that our God is a jealous, faithful and gracious husband. That's who he is. Husband. And so because of that, therefore, submit to him. Now, submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and commit ourselves to obey him in all things. So we, we submit. We place ourselves under his authority in glad submission to his wise rule. That's what James is unpacking. Glad submission to God's wise rule. And if you've been with us at all in James, which you should have seen in James, what I've tried to highlight multiple times is his wise rule means he knows more than you and better than you. So you can gladly submit to his wise rule because he knows more and better than us. He's creator, we're creation. And then getting to verse 7, submit to what? Resist. So, so submit to God and his authority means that we unsubmit to the devil's authority. We refuse to bow down to uh, the devil. We refuse to follow the devil. We turn from the devil's footholds and lies and temptations and believe God's truth and experience his grace. And that, that verb resist means to stand against, to withstand, to oppose. So this is active on the offense. But a few weeks ago, you spent a whole sermon on that, on resist the devil, 
on spiritual warfare. But now just I want to connect these two so you see them. To submit to God looks like resisting the devil and repenting of sin. That's what he's saying. To submit to God looks like resisting the devil and repenting of sin. And repenting of sin is where we're at today. James is urging us in these few lines that we would repent of our sins and seek God as a part of this overall call to submit to God, to humble ourselves before God. And so instead of being drawn into conflict with each other, like we're so often tempted towards as a church family, to start fighting with one another, to start arguing with one another, start jockeying for position, start dismissing people and slandering them and, and have an issue with one person. Instead of going to them, we go to another person and just vent to them and gossip about them. Uh, but instead of going to them first and only, he's saying, instead of having this conflict with each other, fight the devil and fight our sin. That's what he's calling us to. To fight our sin and fight the devil. Now, what does that look like? Well, this is just kind of a progression of thought. This is like not new thoughts. He just kind of keeps unpacking it. So he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and then he says, draw near to God. This is, this is turn from your sin, turn from your idolatry, and turn to God. This is Hosea 12, 6. This is what draw near means. But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and always put your hope in God. Another piece of Jewish literature at the time states, uh, draw near to God and be on guard against Satan and his spirits. It's like, yeah, that, that's, that's, they're speaking the same language. James is right there. And then do you see the promises here? I don't want these to get lost on you. Don't miss this. Resist the devil and he will flee. That's not a suggestion. That's not a flimsy guarantee. That's a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's good news. Whatever power Satan may have, if you are in Christ, you can absolutely be certain that you have been given the ability to overcome that power. Resist and flee. And whatever terrible sins you've committed, you can be absolutely certain that when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Like the father of the prodigal son, God stands always ready to welcome you back, to move towards you, He's not, this is me sometimes, the exhausted dad, exhausted over my kids' disobedience and sin. That's not the father. The father's not an exhausted dad, exhausted by your disobedience and your sin. He's not at the end of his rope. No, God is patient and gracious, and he joyfully welcomes you back into his warm embrace. He doesn't sit on the porch, angrily watching you make the walk of shame all the way to him. 
like the prodigal son's father, he jumps up off the porch as soon as he sees you and runs to you. You made a little bit movement towards him and turning from your sin and turning to him, and he jumps up and races to you to hold you, to hug you, to welcome you back, to love you, to forgive you, to embrace you. This is who God is. He will draw near. Those are two promises you can't bank on. But James keeps progressing. You can unpack this phrase. So we unpack submit to God by uh, unpacking resist the devil and then drawing near. Well, now he unpacks draw near with two commands that if you take them together is this robust repentance that covers the whole person. Do you see those two verses, those two uh, phrases? Literally, it reads, wash hands, sinners. Purify hearts, double-minded. That's how you'd read it if you read it in the original language. It's, it's jarring. James, up to this point, has called the people he's writing to dear brothers and sisters like four or five times. But then in verse 4, what did he call them? You adulterous people. What does he call them here? Sinners. Double-minded. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. They are Christians in need of a wake-up call that shakes them again to the seriousness of their sin. And, and maybe I go out on a limb and say, maybe that's some of us. Maybe. That we need a wake-up call to the seriousness of our sin, to the gravity of our worldly attitudes and worldly behaviors, to our evil desires and our inordinate desires that are stirring up conflict in our relationships and our friendships and our community group and our marriages and this body as a whole. And so maybe, just maybe, this isn't James writing 2,000 years ago. Maybe this is the Holy Spirit inspiring James, and this is carried for 2,000 years for all of God's people throughout church history, including us. So instead of stiff-arming this and thinking, yeah, get him, James, how about, yeah, get me, Spirit? Brothers and sisters, sinners and double-minded, wash your hands. Purify your hearts, meaning repent of your sin. Turn in your actions and your attitude. That's what I mean by this is robust. Wash your hands covers your external behavior. But this purify your hearts includes, covers our internal attitudes and loves and desires. Repentance isn't a mere apology mouthing words. It's a change in actions and attitude. That's what James is after. It's replacing lies we believe with the truth. It's worshiping Jesus, not false gods like comfort and power and control and approval. It's turning from following the world's system and the world's values and turn to follow Jesus in practical movement and action. God tells the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 3, that these people have set idols in their hearts. Sin 
sin isn't making a little mistake. Your sin, my sin, is cosmic treason. Or to explicitly use James' words in verse 4, it's spiritual adultery. That's what sin is. We don't just have dirty hands. We have dirty hearts. So let me paraphrase Martin Luther. Martin Luther kind of said, beneath every behavioral sin is an idol, and beneath every idol is a disbelief in the gospel. He's unpacking James. This is what James is saying. This isn't just your hands. This is also internal. Repentance includes a turning from our sinful actions and our sinful desires and our sinful disbelief. And so I want you to see this. I want to get real practical as I've tried through throughout this whole time because James is amazingly practical. And so let me get into this a little bit. I want you to think about this. Think about behavioral sin underneath that idol, underneath that disbelief in the gospel. And here's a few examples. One, lying. So that would be the behavioral sin, right? Lying, lying to someone. What could be under that? I'm not saying this is always what's happening. I'm just trying to give you some examples of what this could look like. And so if you're lying to your spouse, lying to your friend, what could be under that? Well, approval, right? Because if you tell them the truth, you may lose their acceptance. You may lose their approval. Well, what's underneath that idol? Well, disbelief in the gospel that the Father's acceptance of you through Christ isn't enough. You have to have this person's approval because your acceptance from the Father isn't enough. Are you tracking with me? Okay, I hope it's helpful for you four. Number two, <laughs> behavioral sin, viewing pornography. That's external sin, right? And guys and gals sometimes just confess that behavioral sin, but never get underneath what's underneath that. So what could be underneath that? What's the idol? Well, comfort, right? For that immediate pleasure, that immediate... Uh, release that immediate escape from something that's hard. I've had a hard day. I've had a hard life. I've had a hard conflict. Uh, I want some escape. I want some comfort in the moment. This is really easy. Well, what's, what could be the disbelief in the gospel underneath that? Well, the Spirit's presence with me through Christ's assistance isn't enough. I need a better comforter. I need a more imminent comforter. I need greater comfort. Number three. These are just examples. Behavioral sin, refusing to forgive. Under that could be the idol of power, that when I don't forgive this person, I feel some sense of power. I get to control how this goes. I, 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 to forgive them is to relinquish some sense of power, so I can hold this power over them as long as I don't forgive them. So this could be, again, could be the idol underneath it. What's maybe the disbelief underneath that? Well, Jesus' forgiveness of me wasn't that big of a deal. I'm the Lord, not him. So I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep believing that. Disbelieving the gospel that the ascension of Christ confirms him as the world's true Lord. Not you. The Father never raised you from the grave after carrying the sin and shame and guilt of uh, everyone on the planet but he did Jesus. He's the one in power. Number four, lashing out, speaking harshly. 
under that can be control. Um, I'll speak from my own experience. This is where where I can where I lash out and, and speak harshly with my kids is typically uh, underneath with my control where I have this plan of where this is going to go, how this is going to happen, and they interrupt my plan, and so they interrupt my worship of that idol, and so what do they get? The brunt of my frustration, the brunt of my anger. So you got this control underneath. What might be underneath that? Well, the Father's plan for my life isn't best. Mine is. Let me say something to some of you. If you grew up in superficial, if you grew up around superficial Christianity, I want to just be honest with you. Maturing as a disciple of Jesus is not putting on a facade to make yourself look okay to other people. That's not maturity. Learning the game of saying, oh, I think this is what they want me to look like, and then I'll play that part, that's not maturity. Maturity as a disciple of Jesus means submitting to God and allowing him to change you from the inside out through this gift of repentance. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, doesn't give you a mask to wear. The gospel changes you from the inside out. It's actually only in the gospel because every other world, religion, or philosophy, you put on some mask or you try to create some mask. But in the gospel, it's the only one that frees you to take off all the masks that you've put on all through your life and to be open, exposed, because it's only in the gospel that you're fully known and truly loved. And so I'll just kind of walk through all four of those examples. Well, what would this look like? to repent, to draw near to God. Well, believe the good news that the Father fully accepts you through Christ. Worship Jesus, not approval. Then you're free to speak the truth. You don't have to soften the truth and hide. You can be honest about your failures and your sin to others. You don't have to lie to them. What about comfort? Believe the good news that you have the Holy Spirit, the comfort with you sent from the Father and the Son. And so you can worship Jesus, not comfort, and be free to say no to pornography. How about power? Believe the good news that Jesus' resurrection confirms him as the world's true Lord. Worship Jesus, not power, and be free to forgive others as you've been forgiven by God. What about control? Believe the good news that the Father planned the story of redemption. He knows best. Worship God, not control. And be free to hold your plans loosely. To be gentle with others when they interrupt your plans or your rhythm. The reality, the good news is that God, his power is greater. His control is perfect. His comfort is satisfying. And his approval is eternal. There is no God like our God. And so James has made this case throughout this that genuine faith works. Like if you, if you have faith, believing faith in Jesus, then it's actually going to bear fruit. And we see here that genuine repentance changes. Repentance is not just a confession of I'm sorry and God or other people saying it's okay. It's genuine change from the inside out. But it must start with God. Your sin must start with God. 
your spouse is a terrible savior. When you sin and your first person to run to, to go to, to talk to, to confess to is your spouse, they can't save you. They can't fully forgive you. They can't transform you. They are a terrible, functional Messiah. James didn't say, hey, submit to your spouse and draw near to them. They'll draw near to you. In your sin, that's not the most important thing. That's not what you need. What you need is to submit to God and draw near to him and let him draw near to you. I say that because, again, I'm a week late because it was Reformation, Reformation Day last week, but I'm going to just keep quoting Luther. Luther believed that you wouldn't, we wouldn't, violate the last eight of the Ten Commandments if we didn't violate the first two. Meaning, if you put God above everything, you won't sin, you won't disobey Commandments 3 to 10 in any way. Meaning, I'll say it this way, if I disrespect my parents, right, which is later down the commandments, not one or two, if I disrespect my parents, it's because I've set something else in my heart above God that is worth disrespecting for. If I steal, it's because I first set up something else in my life that I cherished above him. So this starts with you before the face of God, you submitting to God, or that book in, you humbling yourself before God. David Pallison and Tim Keller and others have written extensively about deep idols that drive our behavior. And so I'm going to give you a little snapshot. I did it in the examples, but let me expand a little bit. Deep idols, these four deep idols that drive our behavior. So what I'm saying and what I'm trying to get at all of this is wash your hands and purify your hearts. Okay? That's what we're doing. So what are these deep idols? Power. That's a longing for influence or recognition. Control. A longing to have everything go according to my plan. Comfort. A longing for pleasure. Approval. A longing to be accepted or desired. Now, after I tell you that, I feel compelled to tell you. Because I've experienced this so much in the past. Looking at those things, considering those things, is not a Myers-Briggs personality test. I know that's from the 90s. I know I'm so far behind. But that's not what this is about. Seeing this is not to be like, oh, man, we can, we can commiserate with one another. Hey, Lucas, you, you struggle with uh, control? Me too, man. We're kind of similar. That's not the point of this. The point of this is see your spiritual adultery for what it is. And to specifically turn and move towards God through the good news of Jesus. This is heart surgery. This is opening up the deep idolatry in us where we love something more than God, where we believe we need blank more than we need God. And the truth from James is that our God is jealous for our affections. 
God wants your heart. God wants your undivided allegiance and loyalty. He's calling us to return to him, to forsake other lovers, to forsake counterfeit gods and draw near to him. And James keeps going. He adds, grieve, mourn, weep. We don't just regret sin, family. We grieve sin. We grieve it. We see it for what it is. We acknowledge and feel how our sin has affected our holy God. This is the, the pattern and the illustration in the Old Testament. That people grieved, mourned, wept over their sin. Joel 2, 12. I'll show you. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. So a typical cultural expression was to tear your hearts when you're grieving over your sin or grieving maybe over suffering. You say, no, no, no. In your sin, don't just tear your clothes. Don't just tear your shirt. Tear your hearts. If I could put it in my vernacular, rip the idol out of your heart. And return to the Lord your God. Why? <laughs> For he's gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And so we pick up here clearly, and also Psalm 51, is that heartfelt sorrow for our sin is a mark of true repentance. In opposition to worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is also sorrow, is typically sorrow for uh, being caught, right? Like I feel bad because I got caught. Or I failed my own standard. That's worldly sorrow. But godly grief over our sin is seeing our sin before God and acknowledging it and accepting this is how he sees it. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. Paul tells the Corinthian church that in 2 Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians 5.2, he also tells them to Mourn for your sin. If you want to see a very quick, clear picture of godly grief, I'll take you to Luke 22. Peter denies Jesus three times, comes to realization. What does he do? Peter went outside and wept bitterly. He didn't come to the sense of like, oh, I've betrayed my Lord after I vehemently I said I wasn't going to. And it was like, my bad, Jesus. I'm sorry. He wept bitterly. This godly grief of mourning and weeping. Many people in the Old Testament, including the king of Nineveh, king of Nineveh mourned uh, their sin in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Sackcloth Rough fabric, that's my two-word definition, and just sitting in ashes, grieving, weeping, fastening over their sin. This is what James is commanding. This is what James is calling us to. But he's not done. He goes on to command to change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So this is a bit confrontational. He's saying, stop, 
laughing about your sin. Stop taking pleasure in your sin. And you know James has picked up so much from Jesus' sayings in his life and also from the Proverbs. And so do you, do you know what uh, uh, laughter is seen in the Proverbs? In Proverbs, laughter is often the mark of a fool. Proverbs 10, 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. But wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. And so it's foolish. It's playing the fool to scorn the idea of following Jesus. It's playing the fool to casually go along in a life of idolatry and disobedience. Family, we can't slip into this casual attitude toward our sin, being desensitized by our sin, or justifying our ongoing sin because God is gracious. I mean, dudes, husbands, that's like telling yourself, my wife is understanding, so this ongoing adultery is okay. That's what it's like to justify your ongoing sin by telling yourself, God is gracious. How's that going to play out for you? Or it's like saying, my wife is so cool, so this pornography isn't that bad. And I put it in those terms because this is what we're saying with our relationship with God, our jealous and faithful husband. Your sin isn't merely making a little mistake. It is spiritual adultery. So to justify it is to tell your things, crazy things like this. So we can't, we can't slip into this, but if we're in this, we need to snap out of this casual attitude toward our sin. Sin is a serious breach in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Adultery, if not healed, can lead to temporal and spiritual disaster. Now, there might be some of you, because we, we, we went through Philippians a year or two ago, and you're like, well, what about Philippians 4.4? How do we square this? Where Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And James is telling us, doom, gloom, in the Lord always. You're like, what? What is happening? Is this, is this another perfect example of the contradiction between Paul and James? No, no, it's not. It's not. And I get excited about this, and so I'll just quote Douglas Moo instead of talking for 10 minutes out of it. This is what he says. But the joy Paul speaks about is the joy that comes when we realize that our sins are forgiven in Christ. The joy James warns about is the fleeting and superficial joy that comes when we indulge in sin. True Christians... True Christian joy can never be ours if we ignore or tolerate sin. It comes only when we have squarely faced the reality of our sin, brought it before the Lord in repentance and humility, and experienced the cleansing work of the Spirit. So godly grief over our sin is where repentance must begin, but it's not where God leaves us. He doesn't leave you in that grief. Look at verse 10 again, and you'll see this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So to humble ourselves is the same thing as submit. It's to recognize our own spiritual poverty and our desperate need for God and to submit to his commanding will in our life. So what, what does this repentance look like? Or what does this 
humbling yourself and being exalted by the Lord look like? I'm just going to keep giving you illustrations. Luke 18, the tax collector in Luke 18. The tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is Jesus speaking. I tell you this. I tell you, this one went down to the house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So genuine repentance begins with grief over our sin, but it ends in rejoicing. It ends in rejoicing. Because you're grieved first over your sin before God, but then you turn in your repentance to gaze upon Jesus. And Psalm 1611 tells us clearly that in his presence is abundant joy. Worshiping him is delight. Like you're turning from a lifeless, over-promising, under-delivering idol into the one true God who's actually for you and alive and reigning. And in his face, beholding him is true joy. And so repentance is all about your joy. In this restored worship, our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and we celebrate. So it's, it's kind of this wild curve that's happening where some of us are laughing about our sin, making light of it, minimizing it, and, and we need to follow James and say, okay, we need to turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to grieving, and we need to come down to this valley and then in our repentance, we turn and then turn to real joy, which is gazing upon the face of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus, and explode with celebration of who he is and what he's done and who he's made us. This is joy. I mean, we deserve death, but we're given life by Jesus' death in our place. We deserve wrath and separation, but we're given peace and sonship as the Father poured out his wrath, not upon us, but upon his Son. We deserve a life of shame and guilt, but we're giving acceptance, no condemnation. And we're given his righteousness because Jesus bore our shame and guilt. And so I hope you feel this. Like if you're not a Christian and you're here with us, that maybe you've been around the church a little bit, but, but you really haven't met Jesus, his cosmic grace hasn't collided with your heart. This is the spirit wooing you, inviting you to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, to put your faith in him, to believe the good news, the gospel, of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back. If you're a Christian convicted by the Spirit, then it's the same call to you, to repent and believe. Again, Luther's first, first thesis of 95, that he nails to the door. All of life should be one of repentance. Repentance is the beginning and only the beginning of your walk with Jesus. It's the rhythm of your walk with Jesus. And so we turn in worship 
we turn to rejoice, we turn to celebrate because of the truth of the gospel, which then what? Promotes and perpetuates more joy, belief, and worship. Repentance, family, is not a bitter pill to swallow, even if it's painful sometimes. It's not a bitter pill to swallow. It's a gift to rejoice in. Yes, we grieve our sin, but may we not see repentance as despairing or just one single event, but embrace it as joyful and as a way of life. Tim Keller puts it this way. In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap in to the joy of our union with Christ to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. That's what this is. This is the life of repentance. This is what James is calling us to submit to God, to resist the devil, to repent of sin. Now, Now, our sin is ultimately always against God, so we start there. That's what James is all talking about. This is where your repentance needs to start, this vertical relationship with God. But in thinking about conflict, you're, you also sin against those in this room. You also sin against your kids. You also sin against your coworkers. And so we got to keep on thinking about, all right, what does it look like to deal with that conflict in light of what James is saying here, that yes, we move towards God, we draw near to him in confession and repentance, but, but what else? We move towards others in confession. And so to get real practical in our conflict here, there are seven A's of confession from uh, the book Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones that I'm going to quickly walk through, okay? Are you still with me? I'm, I'm debating right now, like praying. Should I keep going or should I stop here? I knew how long this was going to be, but I was like, nah, I'm going to be able to fit it in. But here we are, looking at the clock. This is, this is where we're at. You still with me? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> That's the one that got me. Um, seven A's in your confession, because there's so much. I've done a ton of shepherding counseling over the years. It's pretty rough, pretty rough. And so I just want to get real practical. And if you're new to this, that's fine. That's why we're doing this. I you, want you to grow in this. I want you to be aware of this. If, uh, if, if some of the things I'm about to say, like, you're like, that's, that's like my pattern. That's my go-to. That's okay. Like, you can grow in this. That's why we're doing this. You can do this. You can grow in this. So seven A's of confession to others. Number one, address everyone involved. Okay. If you sin against four people, don't just confess to one. Bring them all back. Conf confess to all of them. Also, consider the witnesses of your sin. Meaning, I sin a lot against my wife, and what I do now, which I didn't do early on, is that I confess to her in front of my kids if I sin against her in front of my kids. Like, they need, they need to hear that. Early on, what I'd always do is like, all right, babe, we, we got him down to bed. Now we need to talk. And they never, see, they never see dad repenting. They only see dad sinning. 
want, to, I want them to see both. I, <laughs> I don't want them to see me sinning. I just know it's going to happen. That's a weird way to say that. I really want them to see me sinning as my wife. Address everyone involved. Number two, big one. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Oh, man. That is, those are rough confessions. Those are rough confessions. I'm sorry if I hurt you. What? If you're not sure if you hurt me, then why are you telling me this? Is it just so that you can say it and get me off your back? It's a weird thing. I'm sorry if I hurt you. What am I supposed to do with that, too? Like, well, I thought you did. Thank you. It's like, what, how, does, how am I supposed to react to this? Or, I'm sorry I yelled at you, son, but if you took the trash out when you were supposed to do so, I wouldn't have. It's like, wait, what? So really, it's me? It's me? You yelled at me because of what I did? Are you confessing? Are we, what are we doing here? You're just telling me stuff? You're just, I, I thought you were convicted and you just came at me and told me that I messed up. Like, what are we doing here? But confessions shift blame. They declare that our failures are not fully our fault. That's what happens in those. Number three, admit specifically. Robert Jones says, oh, this is Robert Jones. We're just trying to unpack this a little bit for you. Um, and we printed out this whole thing for you that goes into more detail. It's in the back in the table there. I, Matt, is it in the uh, foyer as well? This one and that one? Okay. Uh, here, it's the whole chapter of this book. It's going to de more detail. So I hope a little bit this morning just kind of whets your thirst, your appetite, and you're like, okay, I need to grow on this. Let me read all of it. But admit specifically. So whatever sincerity drives it, and I'm sorry, son, that I've been a lousy dad, that confession remains weak. How have you felt as a father? In what ways? People sin in the concrete, not the abstract. Not only does a specific confession show thoughtfulness, sincerity, and sorrow, it also sets a specific agenda for change. How do you set a specific for agenda for change if you're confessing, I'm a lousy dad? Well, how are you going to be an unlousy dad? It's very generic and ambiguous. Let's get specific there. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. This is maybe the most frequently overlooked of these seven. And the most important. I'll add it. I like the feedback today. Thank you for kicking it off, Becky. like it. I was thinking earlier, like, yeah, I'll say it. I was thinking, man, we, we sing How Great There Art for the people in the back, and we sing You Are Good for the people in the front. I love this mix. I love this mix of Baptists in the back and Pentecostals in the front. Big fan. Big fan. I love it. What a church. Thank you, Becky. And if you didn't know, that's the Pentecostal in the front. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wasn't. It sounds like I'm disrespecting you, Baptists. No, I love you. I am one of you. Um, and I'm also one of you. Uh, number, number, number four, acknowledge the hurt. So think about how is your sin embarrassed, inconvenienced, or tempted, or injured, or provoked the other person? And he gives this really helpful example. Here's a good confession. He says to his wife, I'm sorry, Lauren, for what I said to our friends. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? He says, that's a good confession. And as a professor, I would give it a B grade. Like, you get a B for that. But here's a better one. 
I'm sorry, Lauren, for what I said to our friends. I was wrong, and I know I hurt you and embarrassed you in front of our friends. Will you please forgive me? That confession earns an A, he says. Why? Because it acknowledges the impact that my sin had on the other person. The confession itself is an act of love designed to show my wife my care for her, not merely my desire to clear my conscience. That's acknowledge the hurt. Number five, accept the consequences. Man, this is, this is a big one. The biblical truth underlying this component of a godly confession is that we should bring and bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. So our, your confession, my confession and repentance may require some form of restitution or justice. Think Zacchaeus. I stole from these people for years in my repentance. What am I going to do in bearing fruit with this? I'm going to give back. I'm going to restore what I've stolen. It may include a loss of privileges or possessions. That's what accepting the consequences mean. I think he says that, like, if I borrowed a book from Dan and then I tore it up or let my kids spill coffee over it and ruined it and I give it back and I'm like, I'm sorry, man, and I, I shouldn't have done this. I, I failed you. And he says, I forgive you. And then, uh, you know, two weeks later, I'm like, hey, Dan, can I borrow another book? And he's like, not this time, but thanks for asking, right? Just me. I may accept some consequences from this. Does, did he forgive me? Yes. Hopefully. Do, do we love one another? Yes. Am I trustworthy? Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> right? It also means the other person might be slow or even unwilling to forgive us or to trust us. They may be slow. But that's, ex that's genuinely accepting the consequences of your sin. Knowing. I'm not going to demand this as a right for them to forgive me now. I'm going to be patient with them. Number six, alter your behavior or at least explain how you intend to do so. Uh, another thing I read talks about this imagery of, all right, a person walking, a person on a bike, a person on a car, a person on a cruise ship. They're all going to turn, but maybe that person walking, it's a quick turn, a quick change, a quick phone call. The person on the bike, it's going to maybe take a longer turn. The person on the car, longer. And they have to consider other things. The person on the cruise ship that has long patterns of ongoing sin and hurting others in this particular way, maybe addictions, like it's going to take them a while to turn that whole cruise ship, but they actually have a plan to do so. It, it may not be instantaneous change uh, after that person just repents, confesses to God, and then to you, it may take a while, but they're moving in that direction, and they're like intentionally moving that way. It may require more time. Just the, the question we must ask is, do we have a practical plan to avoid recurrence, and can we state it? He always tells everyone to write it down. Like, what's your actual plan? to turn from this and move and bear fruit in this. And then number seven, I already said this, but ask for forgiveness and allow time. He says, maybe ending with, I'm sorry for what I did and how I hurt you. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And he says, asking doesn't mean demanding. And in more severe uh, um, cases, 
you may not even ask forgiveness in the moment. You may tell them, like, I, I'm going to, I want you to forgive me, but I know that this is heavy and hurtful, and it's going to take some time. He says we should desire her forgiveness. We must never require her forgiveness. Like we take a good desire and it becomes inordinate. We're kind of back to where we began. But what we see here, for that's the seven A's that hopefully help you, equip you a little bit to talk. Uh, grab this in the background, the Welcome Center. But back to big picture of this whole uh, passage of James 4 through 7. To be clear and succinct. If you're actually going to submit to God today in practice, in function, in real movement, you are going to resist the devil and repent of sin. And so the Spirit, I think, is clearly speaking to you that one or both, but you got to do something with this. James 1, don't listen to me talk for 50 minutes and not do anything with it. That's put me to center. Don't, don't wrestle with these four verses and be a hearer only, but not a doer. If you do, James says, we deceive ourselves. Father, I pray for us. I pray that we would act on this, would move towards you in this. All that beautiful language of submit to you and draw near to you and wash hands and purify hearts and mourn and grieve and turn laughter to uh, uh, grief and mourning. I pray we would actually act in this, Lord. In this moment, I pray that this would be a significant moment of change, repentance, and joy. I pray for some of us that you would touch us. I think you would reveal yourself to us like Isaiah and that we would feel the weight right now of our sin before you like we never have. Like we genuinely grieve our spiritual adultery before you. But I also pray that it would end with the most raucous joy that we've ever experienced because we're turning to you and fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.